0: Hello and welcome to Let the Stones Speak. I'm Brent Nachtigall, your host, coming to you from Jerusalem, Israel. This is a podcast where we talk about the latest in biblical archaeology. And by latest, I definitely mean that. Uh, Just this past week, there was a story that was reported in the Jerusalem Post about an ancient Hebrew amulet that was discovered on the site of Joshua's altar on Mount Ebal. Today, I'm going to play an interview that I conducted with Dr. Scott Stripling, He is the provost at the Bible Seminary in Katy, Texas. He's also the director of the Renewed Shiloh Excavations. And in some of his off time, he's also leading a team or led a team to do sifting up on Mount Ebal, or at least very close by, of the material that was excavated about 30 years previously, or 40 years going on previously. And he's the one that led the team that uncovered this amulet, potentially with some Hebrew writing on it. And so, please enjoy this interview with Doctor Scott Stripling. Doctor Scott Stripling, thank you very much for joining. Let the Stone speak. Hey, Brent, glad to be with you, man. So, this story kind of uh, came across the news uh, this past week, on January twenty sixth, from the Jerusalem Post: ancient Hebrew amulet discovered at Joshua's altar in Samaria. And it's just, it's just, just reading this headline. I think for those people that aren't initiated with this location or with this site, it reads like it's a very matter-of-fact situation that perhaps a lot of people agree with. Um, But there is some very important discoveries coming out of this location. We're going to talk a little bit about Joshua's relationship to Mount Ebal and what was found there about the altar part of it. But I want to start with this stunning news that an ancient Hebrew amulet was discovered at this site and your involvement in that. So this excavation has gone on for a long time or in the past, you didn't necessarily dig it, but you had your hands in the dirt that came from this location.
1: Well, Brent, the the idea is we want a regional approach and understanding. So we've been excavating in the highlands of Israel <clears throat> since 1979. And so, first at Kerbet Nisia, then Kerbet Makatir, now at Shiloh. <clears throat> so, you study the regional sites, and you're trying to understand, for example, in the highlands, what was going on within certain horizons. And in this case, we're dealing with conquest sites. Um, after Ai, which we believe Kerbet El-Makathir was probably the site of, of Ai mentioned in Joshua 7 and 8, according to the biblical text, the Israelites went north and they renewed covenant at uh, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim with ancient Shechem in the middle, of course. Joshua 830 says that Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal, And we have a few other details that are given there in the text. Adam Zertal uh, discovered this in his Manasseh survey and then in the 1980s excavated uh, at the site. He was shocked to discover that it was indeed an an altar. Um, He was coming from more of a secular uh, training and mindset. It caused him to believe in the historicity of the text. Uh, Sadly, Zertal died before his final publications were done, but he did do a very good preliminary um, report in Tel Aviv. Uh, The entire uh, issue of Tel Aviv was devoted to it, about 100 pages. Um, Zertal found a rectangular altar that had been intentionally covered, and at the geometric center of that, ar- of that altar was an earlier round altar that was clearly older. It had been protected and venerated by the later rectangular altar. So uh, shall I pause there for a moment?
0: Yeah, let's pause there and unpack this just a little bit. We'll we'll go with the, what the Bible says about the conquest, Israel entering. You talk about the, the battle at successful battle for I after a failure at I and then you said that they moved north to this area of Mount Ebal and Gerizim and perhaps you can talk about um what the bible says took place in this area uh, at that at that time with involving these two mountains and then maybe you can you can discuss a little bit of but a little bit more about what Zertel uh, discovered in t- and how he dated the square altar on top, and then we'll get to the amulet.
1: Okay, absolutely. The text tells us that all of Israel went north, and uh, they divided with six tribes on Mount Gerizim to pronounce blessings, and six tribes on Mount Ebal to pronounce curses. So it was a covenant renewal ceremony in the Mm -hmm. way that it would be done in the Late Bronze Age. And the Ark of the Covenant and the Levites uh, were in the middle. So Manivad then is known as the Mountain of the Curse, Mount Gerizim, the the Mountain of the Blessing. Um, so what Zertal found when he began to excavate the site, which is that it's a site called El Bernat. and it's on the second step on the back of uh, of what mm-hmm. we call Manivad. And um, he of course was quite surprised by what he uncovered. They did a a thorough job and our interest in the conquest, we've always had our eye on Manival. It was not an easy site to access, to get to. Yeah, why is that? Well, I mean, it's an area B, uh, barely. And so whenever these lines were drawn in the Oslo Accords, um, it was for whoever made those decisions. They could have just moved the line a little bit, and it would have been in Area C, but instead it's in Area B, so this makes it very uh, problematic. And so we know that there's massive looting of antiquities um, outside of Area C, and I know because right. uh, even in Area C, you, you, know, you can't protect a lot of that stuff, and even recently there has been vandalism on the, the outer perimeter of the altar and so forth. Right. So our interest was in, since Zertal was not able to finish a final publication.
0: So how do what was the, what I just want to talk about the scholarly uh, approach or the academic reaction to Zertal's findings in the mid 80s. Okay, well, first responses were, because he was at Tel Aviv,
1: <clears throat> of which, uh, you know, very secular environment. And um, they were kind of shocked. Adam's gone off the reservation, so to speak. You know, what's what's he talking about? You know, taking the Bible as a reliable text. Um, So he was ignored to some extent initially. Uh, Eventually, people did engage with him. People of great esteem, like Anson Rainey, did not believe that it was an altar, for example. Uh, Bill Deavers tended to take issue with uh, Zertal as well. But many others were open, you know, to the possibility, and they were awaiting his final publication, which unfortunately we never got.
0: Right. So I've got a quote from um, this is a book, book by Milt Milt Macklin. I don't know if you're familiar with this book. It's more of a popular account of of how this how this was discovered, and it's just interesting because he talks about Yigal Yadin visiting the site. I think in in eighty four or something like that. And he writes this, he said, the one big question Yadin had about the altar was where is the place where the ashes from the sacrifices were dumped? He felt like this had to be an integral part of the sanctuary if it were to be shown that uh, it was a burnt offering altar. He died in 1984, that is go Yadin. The season after he died, Zertel found a place that was filled with ashes just outside the wall. And so have you had a little bit of, as the process of discovery has continued, and as the preliminary report came out, um, there's obviously people that are still going to hold true to what they believe, but where is consensus, archaeological consensus, as as impossible as it sounds to actually <laughs> say that, that exists, uh, where would you say it is in today, in 2022, in regarding this being an altar site, Let's just put it just put it this way, an i site from the conquest time, 13th century, 12th century. Do people believe that now in the field?
1: Um, split down the middle. Um, okay. Some, some
0: yes, and some no.
1: But which is progress, by the way? To be 50-50 is progress in this regard. Right. <clears throat> but. Um, whether, whether we're dating the conquest uh, in the end of the 15th century, beginning of the 14th century, or as late as the 12th century, the question is, you know, do you have evidence of a, a cultic site on Manibal? And I think yes. I spoke on this at a conference in Albuquerque six months ago or something like that, and Bill Deaver was in attendance, and we mm-hmm. talked about it afterwards. And While he had initial reservations, he was very open to the evidence that I presented, the new things that I had talked about, a reanalysis of the pottery, and then what we did
0: through the sifting project. He was very open-minded to it. Okay, so maybe you can um, talk about then his his discovery of this square altar, and then you say that there is a um, that you would look at an earlier installation. Uh, altar, round circular altar, that existed, that kind of the square altar in, encapsulated, and this was in the very center of it. Maybe you can kind of explain how this would have happened, this situation. Okay, well, and for the
1: details, folks could see my chapter in uh, Zondervan's Five Views on the Exodus. I write about it there <clears throat> with a little more technical detail, but in just a few words, you have a two by two meter um, in diameter round altar, that that is the perfect geometric center of the later rectangular. Mm-hmm. Altar. Zertal's own belief and recorded was that the later altar, which everyone is excited about, and it is exciting, was intentionally built to venerate and protect the earlier altar, which was a timenos. Unfortunately, right. very little attention has been paid to that. And people are talking about the rectangular altar as Joshua's altar, Whereas it appears to me that people in the uh, later in the Iron Age, uh, actually early in the uh, Iron Age, one had built this to venerate the cultic site on Maniavon.
0: Okay, so let's talk about archaeological dating of both, and because <clears throat> this is where people will get excited about the the square altar because it's much larger, and even Zertal was excited about this um, and others. What's the dating, and is that? conclusive to the square altar as much as can be possible and then the earlier an altar uh what's the dating for that as much as can be
1: yeah these are always always sticky issues but let's let's say that Zertala saw the the rectangular altar as dating to the beginning of the iron age okay okay uh iron age one and the pottery is like 97 percent of the pottery is appears to be iron age one or transitional uh,
0: pottery, and when you say pottery, you're saying the the what filled the what filled the center part of the of the square altar? Is that where it was found, or was it from the sides, or what?
1: In in the altar and all around the altar, there are little okay. installations all on the outside and storage jars and so forth, all all around. Uh, okay, an and almost total absence of cooking pots, which is interesting. Which. Um, he he made special note of but the pottery dates primarily to that time period then there's about three percent that he noted we found a little more than three percent uh dating to the late bronze age and that then i think corresponds to the earlier round altar from probably the time of joshua bin nun and okay. i have gone back and analyzed that uh pottery and I find forms that go back to the LB1b, LB2a horizon, and some of them that are unique to that time period.
0: And so, what would be the what would be the the events that you would date to that horizon? Or, or...
1: Well, Joshua's altar. I believe that the round altar is very likely Joshua's altar, oh, and that you're around 1400 uh, BC, taking an early date, uh, biblical date of the mm-hmm. uh, Exodus. I find a, a synchronism there very clearly. You have a scarab of the III that is present. You have another scarab of Ramesses II, which probably then dates to the later phase. But also, there are some scholars who are now stating publicly that that scarab also belongs to Thutmose III. Um, there were not clean carbon dates. The carbon material has been lost. We don't have it anymore. That. Mm-hmm. From from clean context, so all we have to go on are ceramic and glyptic analysis, and the fact that clearly the round altar is older than the than the rectangular altar. Zeretall thought it was older by a generation, 25-40 okay. years. Um, it's my belief that it's older than that.
0: Okay, so when you just for our audience Tutmosis III, how does he relate? If you find a glyptic find or a scarab or uh, that belongs to him, why is that more important? Uh, or why is it important to, to show that this this site had a, a greater window of use, of occupation, um, than just the, the 12th century?
1: Okay, well, the III was the most powerful of all the pharaohs. He's in the 15th century BC, and his scarab held a lot of weight and continued to be used and venerated after he had died. And so the fact that it is there potentially gives you confirmation of of a 15th century BC presence. Now, many scholars would argue that these are commemorative or heirloom uh, scarabs, which is possible, that cannot be mm-hmm. proven nor disproven. Unfortunately,
0: the criteria is very subjective for that. Right, so you're saying that the very evidence that you would use to to pin it at least one of the factors to an 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 early to an earlier time, the 15th cent, late 15th century, early 14th century. That very evidence is discounted by some scholars to just say that, well, people a couple hundred years later just decided to recreate that as sort of homage to the the great pharaoh from earlier.
1: That's that's correct. We he left Zerta left part of the round altar unexcavated. So in a perfect world, the end game here is we would like to excavate on on Manival. Um, mm-hmm. and excavate that area with new technology, get good clean carbon dates, get fresh pottery, fresh faunal analysis. See, they, they didn't take the collagen from the bones from clean mm-hmm. contents. That can be carbon dated. And so with new floral and faunal analysis and carbon-14 analysis and ceramic analysis, we could do incredible things. Unfortunately, we couldn't excavate, but we were able to do something really cool.
0: Okay. So what were you able to do?
1: All right, it was about an 18-month process that led up to this, but in December of 2019, this was one of the last projects before the pandemic shut everything down, I was able to take a team and we wet-sifted about 30% of Zertal's dump piles. So he had two huge dump piles, one on the east and one on the west. And so about 75% of our material, 80% maybe, came from The east dump pile and the rest came from the the west dump pile. We dry sifted it again, and then we wet sifted it. We built a provisional wet sifting station at a nearby place, and um, a separate team had had removed part of the dump so that we could do this. So it wasn't excavation. (laughs) Um, It was a reexamination of the discarded material. Right, and right. in the, the dump with wet sifting, it being so powerful, and as you know, at Lot Mazar's biggest finds, the, the Bula, anyway, the the Hezekiah and Isaiah Bula, these come from wet sifting. You, a volunteer, virtually as it is impossible to find these small glyptic uh, finds with the naked eye unless you get lucky. And so we know this because we uh, wet sift everything at Shiloh in situ we wet sifted it and we found a lot. Um, Now, Zerta was very thorough because I have wet sifted other dump piles from the 1980s as part of my my test case, and they were loaded with scarabs and bula and all kinds of riches that had been missed. But Mm -hmm. in Zerta's case, to his credit, he had been very thorough, but nobody could get everything uh, without wet sifting. And so we had over 300 pieces of diagnostic pottery. We had a number of diagnostic flints. We had some important objects and most importantly getting to the point I think that you want to know about is a small lead tablet that appears to be a defixio of the type we would often refer to as a curse tablet.
0: Mm-hmm. So this this curse tablet, it's uh, there's a picture of it. I'll put a picture on the screen so people can understand if you're watching this on YouTube. Um, but I guess it's about two centimeters by two centimeters, something like that, and it's, it's Uh, It's lead made of lead and it's closed like there's something probably inside of it and then written inside of it And then it was closed and you found this and and you were you there when this was discovered? Was this your team? And then what what did you do with it thereafter?
1: Yes, uh, it was my team that uh, that discovered it we uh, We had different once we dry sifted then the material went to through the wet sifting protocols and in the trays it's checked and then it goes to a supervisor to check well the tray that it was found in one of our one of our staff members was frankie snyder who's very experienced she was yeah, a staff great. member at the uh temple mount sifting project for many years right. and so it happened to be in her tray oh, no she, way <laughs> and so she uh, fortunately recognized it showed it to me and then i i grabbed my heart because i knew when i saw it what it was right. I, you know it's right. it is a and now these are, are are more common in the Hellenistic and Roman periods, but they can exist much
0: earlier. Um, yeah, perhaps you can talk a yeah talk about uh, if there's any type of parallel to something as early um, as what you're saying for a lead uh, uh, curse tablet or asphyxial, as you call it.
1: Well, there are. Um, uh, Negro at Jericho, for example, um, published uh, a lead tablet from the uh, early Bronze Age. So you're talking very, very old. Uh, We are researching right now. I have formed a collaborative team and uh, we have done the scientific work on this at a university in Prague to scan the tablet. And now Mm -hmm. we're researching epigraphically. And hopefully
0: later this year, we'll do the we'll be able to present the academic uh, article on it. So the isotope, yeah. Sorry, So It's made. It's made of lead. Um, and there has been some discussion that at least there's an aleph on it. Um, perhaps you can talk about why that's exciting.
1: Sure. Well, we believe that we could see with the naked eye symbols on there, glyptic remains, what appeared to be a lotus flower. Uh, what you know might be uh, a hebrew letter for example but we're looking at the outside of it there's no way we could with the naked eye see the inside and so hence we were able to partner with the lab in prague that had expertise in scanning through lead and and seeing letters and getting results and uh so yes there do appear to be hebrew letters I'm being cautious. I'm saying appear and probably and it seems because it's still early. We're researching. So all I can say right now is that we do appear to have Hebrew text on there and some symbols. Hopefully later this year, we'll be able to tell people what it actually uh, says. Of course, in a
0: perfect world, it's going to be a verse from Deuteronomy 28. (laughs) So, so so again, why why I want you to get to why you know the use of Aleph might be a double bonus included in a word, if that's there?
1: Well, it, if that's indeed the case, Arur, the Hebrew word for curse, um, aleph res Resh, would um that's how the the curse formulas come to us in the biblical text. And mm-hmm. so if that's indeed what you have, it could be that you're you have a formulaic curse. And Mount Ebal is the mountain of the curse, and so, for example, blessed is the man who honors his father and mother from Mount Gerizim. From Mount Ebal, it's cursed is the man who does not honor his father uh, and mother.
0: So this would this this would rock the world in, in many ways. It's kind of like a, a bonus on a bonus on a bonus. Uh, you'd be happy to have any Hebrew text uh, that would exist right. from the from this from. I mean, it's uh, maybe I can ask this. Um, The the dumps themselves that you excavated, the context, obviously it's it's a disturbed context um, because you don't know where it came from exactly. But is is all the remains that you find dated to the Iron One late bronze or do you have later period uh, remains as well so that would push the dating of this
1: out? All right, so that's a very good question. Our ceramic analysis was similar to Zertal's but slightly different we have about 96% of the pottery being, being iron one. Then we have about three and a half, three and a quarter percent being late bronze. Um, and then we have a less than a percent, like less than a half a percent as a matter of fact, that would be early Roman, like occasional piece of an early Roman cook pot or something like that, where maybe mm-hmm. squatters were passing by the site, just <clears> very, <throat> very little. Now, having said that, these tablets more typically would date to the Hellenistic and Roman period, and there's a tiny amount of – Zephtal didn't publish any. He probably thought it was not even consequential enough to mention, but I will just mention that we've a tiny amount of it. So if you're taking the ceramic analysis, you would say it's highly likely that you're dealing with something from the Iron Age or the Bronze Age.
0: Okay. And then – I guess I don't want to um, pin you on this, and perhaps I won't include it. But uh, I saw that Gershon Galil had responded to your Facebook post, um, and he has put a, a reading of something up there. Is this is this something that uh, is just his variation of what it could be, uh, or his his determination, or is this something that you wish he didn't publish just yet or put up there just yet?
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I, I... Probably a bit premature because we really do need to do our due diligence on this. But um, yeah, Gershon um, looked at again the the alafreshresh possibility and the the possibility that these are very early, uh, mm-hmm. knows, mm-hmm. uh, not from the late right. Second Temple period, but from First Temple period or earlier. Um, so that's at this point speculation, but um, we shall see.
0: Okay, so let's say the best possible scenario for this, it is uh, an ancient Hebrew inscription—not just ancient Hebrew, but um, uh, let's just say late Iron One uh, inscription. Keep it keep it vague uh, in that, and it does. Well, what what would that mean, and for for what would that discovery mean?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, if it's proto-Sinaitic, then you're talking about potentially the earliest Hebrew writing that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's potentially enormous and especially if it appears to be part of of recorded scripture then it becomes very difficult for people to argue that the text of scripture wasn't recorded until the (laughs) until the you know hellenistic period or or you know slightly before that if you have portions of scripture for example but again this is speculative
0: speculative yeah and so d- by the end of the by the end of the study the the your due diligence as you say uh will we have do you feel like we'll have a pretty good reading of this i hope i mean it will
1: come down to the quality of the scans i mean what we see is good but uh, Brent, there's thousands of scans, and right. the, the data right. processing and the post-processing of this, and the the expertise to to draw those out uh, it takes a lot of time. But yes, we are sort of daily now getting new looks at the different levels and angles, and you know what we're seeing is encouraging. Um, but we just want to dot every i and cross every t. Right.
0: Yeah, you got to prepare for what's going to come anyway. So yeah, it's fantastic that. I mean, that's what I love about this age we live in right now. In terms of archaeology, we do have tools that you know. If people had these tools 40 or 50 years ago, I mean, wet sifting for one, and then all the different analysis and the ability to read uh, through through a lead wall, uh, basically of the inside contents of something, is is phenomenal. I'm reminded of this this uh, scroll. I think it was a it was a uh, papyrus scroll that was burnt. Uh, that they found like maybe somewhere close to the Dead Sea, I can't recall, but they, they kept it and 30 years later, then they unrolled it virtually, and then they could read some, some you know, ancient text on it. And so it's amazing what we can do at this point. And it seems like all the tools are there now to, to do what you say, to produce at least a far more definitive result than we would have, you know, 30 years ago.
1: Uh, Absolutely. At Herculaneum, you have an entire library of carbonized scrolls that are now being scanned and text that's going to come to us from the ancient world. So very, very fascinating day that we live in.
0: So just to conclude, I want to really focus on just one more kind of thought about Joshua's conquest. Um, By the time this goes to print, we'll be getting towards Pesach, uh, which was around the time period that they came across the Jordan. Um, And then, you know, having a few of these, the few of these conquest sites that you talk about, that you've you've been able to excavate at least one of them, and then this other place now you've had a hand in. Um, how, from your just it's just a straight up scientific perspective, um, the accuracy of this account is this something that most people now, uh, or more people are coming to think, well, maybe there is a, maybe there is historical validity to that account. Again, you've excavated I. You've done a lot at Shiloh, which is a little bit after Joshua, but now you're on Mount Ebal, and from your interpretation, you're seeing evidence from Joshua's time there. I mean, you kind of—it's like there's there's a renaissance on in in evidence that the conquest happened as 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 is described in the Bible. Um, Great question.
1: And uh, Shiloh's not after Joshua. I mean, it's Joshua. Uh, sets up the tabernacle there, Joshua eighteen one, and he lives decades after that point. So the evidence—that's a whole other program for another time. But the evidence right. of the sacrificial system that we're uncovering there is really staggering, and it also looks goes to that LB LB one B LB two A horizon as well. So I would call it verisimilitude. Um, we have, I think, a consistency with what we see in the material culture and what we read in the ancient text. And so, when you take sort of this processualism uh, regional approach, and get the the macro and the micro and and bring them in together and juxtapose them, we see at I we see at Shiloh we see at Manival a consistency of a picture that is beginning to to unfold of early Israelite arrivals. So I think that we can safely say that uh, as as Passover is celebrated this year, that we're not just dealing with a myth, but we're dealing
0: with reality. And then... I just want to take a stab at this. How much how much of the problems that you've faced had to do with, you know, the early biblical scholars that wanted desired to see biblical evidence uh of a of a conquest and and seeing some evidence of conquest at certain sites such as Hazor and elsewhere that because of that evidence and perhaps some transitions uh in in material culture have have really pushed the Exodus into a, a much later time period from when the Bible actually says the Exodus happened. Had that not occurred and had people taken a more literal reading of the numbers of the Bible that would bas- explicitly say um, late 15th century is when the Exodus happened, had they approached it that way and not kind of twisted the evidence of the dates to try and put the exodus at a later time, do you think that your job would have been far more, more easy uh, to convince people? Well, it would have, absolutely. Um, Albright's the classic example, a brilliant
1: father of biblical archaeology, we would call him. But he believed in the biblical date, and the, But early on in his career, he did not see evidence that supported it. Mm. And this is where he began to come up with alternate, alternate ways to read texts of scripture to put you into the 13th century instead of the 15th century. And he was such a giant. And, uh, you know, he trained the, the first generation of Israeli scholars. And, you know, by the time a couple of generations passed, it sort of became the fact. But remember, Brent, less than 1% of Israel, Israeli archaeological sites have been excavated when Albright made his analysis. So to say that right. there wasn't evidence at that horizon is, you know, Laughable now, I think, because now we've got a whopping five or of- six <laughs> percent.
0: Yeah, I think it's really good for people to be reminded of that all the time when they use an absence of evidence to say that something didn't happen. Just remember how much of Israel's actually been excavated. Well, right. And of the parts that were excavated, how much of the evidence is in their dump piles? Mm hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly and and you probably know better than anyone going back the value of sifting sifting the dump so that every scrap of evidence is found. And if you do that then then a more compelling picture of an early Exodus, or really a biblical date Exodus, states uh, starts to appear at these sites. So, if there's anything else that you'd like to add, I really appreciate your time coming on to discuss this. I look forward to having you on maybe in about six or seven months, whenever the the full paper comes out about this, and and uh, to to really explain the significance of the of the inscription itself. But nevertheless, even if the inscription comes back and it doesn't say Aurora, or, or it is from the Hellenistic period, still, I think the compelling point is that you have you have a 15—well, you have an earlier than, than uh, Iron One altar on Mount Ebal, which is what the Bible says exactly happened when Joshua went there.
1: And let's say, Brent, that we— in our final determination, believed that it was a Hellenistic period or Roman period uh, tablet. It still tells us that in the late second temple period, that there were people who believed that that was the site of Joshua's altar. I mean, that they placed right. a curse tablet there. So either way, it's going to be super interesting, but um, I'll be happy to come back and talk about it when that time comes.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much and keep up the wonderful work. I appreciate all you're doing, Brent. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Stripling. If you would like more of our content, please do visit our website, armstronginstitute.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast, both on YouTube and also SoundCloud and on the, in the iTunes store. You can also request our free... Uh, bi-monthly archaeological magazine which focuses on the biblical archaeology of Israel. It's called Lat the Stone Speak as well, and if you want to request your free copy of that or your free subscription for a year of that magazine, you can write your request to letters at armstronginstitute.org Thanks very much for being with me this week, and I'll see you next time.